Good afternoon and good evening. We are the Redraft Podcast. I am your co-host, Romina Ramos, and I am here with my friend, Will Stevenson. How are you, Will? Hiya, Romina. I am pretty good, thank you. I'm enjoying my weekend. Good, so you've got a little bit of a free weekend for yourself. Catching up with some chores. me and the dog. (laughs) And the pots. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, So today, I'm very excited to bring you this episode. We uh, have gone to my old haunting grounds Mm. of the University of Bolton. We sat down in the office with Ben Wilkinson and we had a great chat about process, craft, practice, uh, inspiration, amongst other things. Uh, Ben is a great person he he was a great mentor to me at my time at university so it was only right that we sat down and had a little chat with him uh, I find him super inspiring he taught me a lot of a lot of what I know about the craft and he showed me that poetry can just be um, anything really I, I started uni with misconceptions about poetry as most people probably do come to it a little bit later in life um, and Ben introduced me to people like Danae Smith, uh, who you, you, you'll hear us talk a little bit about in the episode. Um, and people like that, you know, more contemporary poets um, that are writing in the UK today as well, like Claire Pollard, um, Claire Shaw, um, and all these fantastic poets that are in the scene today. Um, so, yeah, before we do chat with Ben and you hear that, we've just got a little bit of uh, housekeeping for you. Absolutely. Um, with, and I'm going to start that with uh, a little shout out to Mumsy Annabella, who today joins hey. our, our third our tier Patreon. Shout out to Mumsy. Um, but no, you know, like any support uh, is fantastic. So we're very grateful, me and Will, for that. So thank you, Mum. Big up, Anna. Um, and yeah, what else have we got going on this week? Oh, I want Very to talk. Importantly. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I want to talk about uh, what I've done this week, which yes, was you've had a, a big week. Yeah, it was it was a late birthday present from my wonderful partner Nat, uh, which was we went to home at Manchester and we sat down and watched an hour show with Kay Tempest. I've been Kay's fan for a long, long time music-wise, poetry-wise. Brand New Ancients was like blew my mind um, at a time where I was getting into Greek myth because of doing the Odyssey at uni and all these things. Um, And, you know, they are incredible. Um, They came out and I I didn't know what to expect. I'd never seen them live, but they came out and they said, I've put a set list for these shows. We were the penultimate show, so they only did one more, which was Edinburgh. They started off at home ground in London and they worked their way um, up the country. Um, and yeah, so they did Manchester and then they, they, they went on to do the last show in Edinburgh. Um, but yeah, so the other day, they, they did a set list, which they did old stuff. And then the last 10 minutes, they read from their new book, which is divisible by itself on one. I don't have my copyright here, it's in the bedroom, but fantastic book. But they come on stage and they said, I had a thought on the train. And what if I just stood here now for the next hour and read this book cover to cover to you? And so the room got to vote what we wanted, and we definitely wanted the latter. Um, A lot more noise was made for that. And they just stood on that stage. They did not take a breath. They they performed cover to cover for us. And, you know, it was amazing. And what I loved about it was that about about halfway through, I started realising when one poem ended and another begun. You couldn't read along because it was dark in there. Um, But their performance style... You know, I clocked on to the fact that they were reading the last line of one poem twice before they started the next. Oh, um, okay. And it was, it was a little, yeah, it was amazing. Like, I, I, I can't stop thinking about it. It was, I'd never seen a poetry gig like that before. They literally stood on the stage and read the book cover to cover to us. Mm. But, I mean, performed it. They didn't just read it, they performed it. Um, and, yeah, they were, they were a superb and then they did a signing at the end, which, you know, I was like the third in line for that. Um, and uh, yeah, I was really nervous. He was like, I know they're just a person like, you know, they're, they're really down to earth, um, which you could tell by the like little bit they spoke up before they started performing. 
but um, yeah, really down to earth. And I just said, I don't know if you remember, but my partner, my video for like weeks, um, two years ago, when just before I turned 30 um, to wish me happy birthday and they had shut up and they was like, was that you? And I was like, Amazing. ah, they remember me. Uh, but yeah, we had a little moment. They were there with a the partner, I believe. And uh, we had a little moment. We took a little selfie and yeah, I told them they made that my year. That picture is so cute. Yeah. We need to they look so Instagram happy, so don't they? They it. look so happy. Yeah. Like... You all do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. amazing. You know what, uh, listener, you should see Romina's face right now. It's been a picture. You look absolutely <laughs> buzzing remembering this. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. It sounded like an amazing day. I was gutted not to be able to go just um life get in the way sometimes but and you know what was really yeah, funny wow. about that is that the two seats next to us earlier in that day i heard that uh tony potts and jack um I've, I, his last name is escaping me now but he did the last Coverdale? switch but yes 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 Coverdale. Coverdale. Shout, out Coverdale. shout out jack he's incredible by the way he's actually yeah. he blew my mind over bows last month but um yeah he messaged me saying oh i can't wait i might see you there i was like yeah yeah cool i hope to see you there and they sat next to us they were literally <laughs> the next seat. i feel like um all of manchester's creative community was there i mean kate island was there oh was she Lisa was meant to be there yeah yeah, yeah. antonio fazaro was two rows above uh, in front of us as well <laughs> you know with her partner uh yeah Shout out to all these people Everyone's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. big yeah. up big up and if you're coming through to k as your inspiration there's no doubt that you're gonna be amazing so tell me about the new work was it how what, what previous k temper stuff did it most um i think it's new you know i think this is them um you know, they just dropped like a mini LP, uh, a mini mm. EP, four tracks. Mm. Nice idea. Fucking great track. Great album. Like mm. me and that mm. can't stop listening to um, two of those, three of those tracks, really. Um, really good. But yeah, I think this is new K um, territory. That book deals a lot with the body, uh, mm. you know, being, being all aspects of it. I think it deals a lot with the fact that the body was a foreign thing to them at, at one point. They've mm. had a lot of, you know, uh, a difficult relationship with it throughout their life. Um, I don't know if you've managed to catch um, Animax Pod this week with them as well, uh, called Changes. I did not know that was a thing. Right. Give that a listen. Go, That's incredible as well. Um, okay. It's on all, all, all platforms. Go check that out if you haven't. Um, but yeah, they're very candid about, you know, they've had a, since puberty, they've had a really difficult discussion. Uh, really difficult relationship with the body and i think this book deals with that it deals with them with the body being a foreign thing with a difficult relationship but also with the acceptance of it and the transition and the acceptance of it at the end there's a lot with Kay um coming to terms with it themselves and also as they mentioned in the podcast the queer community was a foreign thing to them until very recently and so that's it's the last poem in that book is kind of a love letter to the queer community. They apologize. Uh, they apologize to it for their own internalized transphobia and homophobia throughout their life. And, you know, wow. um, yeah, it's a beautiful book. You definitely need to get it. You need to check yeah, it out. to get it, to get a copy yeah. and have a read. Definitely. It's incredible. A massive inspiration for, for both of us, I think. But yeah. Yeah, the way that you've connected with their stories really nice to see so i'm really happy that you enjoyed your experience so much it, it looked great yeah um so moving on we have something to to mither you all about coming up this is the final main edition of the pod um before on saturday the 13th our big the doors open cic that's co uh, community interest companies launching workshop the doors open to making zines yes. led by yourself at three guys cafe tell us all about it what we're going to do on saturday so we're going to gather i've got loads of different materials and we are going to create some wonderful little arty zines um they don't have to be poetry they don't have to be about writing they can be about anything i've got an example that's going to be on all the of one that I did last week that's going to be on all the tables for a little inspiration. I've got loads of bits and pieces of arts and crafts and you don't need to bring anything. You just need to come along, have an idea or be inspired by something you see on the night. And yeah, we're just going to, we're just going to have a little discussion about zines, what they are, what they can do, uh, why, why, why we do them, why they're in the world. Uh, and then have a go at making one of our own and then you can take that home with you. That sounds beautiful. I'm really excited. For and it's free. Shop, so. it's free. It's free. It is free. free. And we are about halfway out of places. So it is free, but you do need to book. Yes. To go to 
at the doors open CIC. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And find your place um, at the link in our bio on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. So that about does it for the plugs, for the reviews, and uh, we'll, we'll get into the main section of the pod. So Ben Wilkinson is a poet, a literary critic, and a lecturer at the University of Bolton. Uh, he was very candid with his time. Uh, he was a great chat. It was really inspiring for me to listen to you two talk back and forth about poetic styles. Um, I take the back seat in this one a little bit. Your relationship with Ben, um, obviously having been lectured by him, is really nice and inspiring to see. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did listening to you two for the most part, because I thought it was a great chat. Yes, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. And I hope you do too. We'll catch you at the end. Hello, we're here in our, my old uh, stomping grounds, the fourth floor of University of Bolton, where we're sitting down chatting with Ben Wilkinson. Ben is a poet, critic, academic, and lecturer in creative writing, uh, and a very busy man by the sounds of it. Uh, so firstly, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Uh, yeah, we appreciate your time. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here, and nice to have you back on campus, right? Yeah, 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 it's nice to be back. I've been back a couple of times, but it's uh, it always feels a bit surreal coming back, not as... Not as a student in another capacity. Especially on an incredibly sunny day. Yes. Be a rarity in this part. Yeah, of the world, absolutely. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, so cool. So um, as we usually do here on the Redraft podcast, we like to rewind and go all the way back to the beginning. Um, so if you would tell us a bit about where you spent your formative years, what school was like for you. Did you engage with the literature and poetry being taught to you back then? Or is it something you came to later in life? That kind of thing. Yeah, so I, th I think for me, like a lot of people, poetry was something that I didn't gravitate towards straight away. I mean, when I was a teenager, it was always about song lyrics. I was into bands, you know. I'm obviously old enough to have bought tapes and CDs. And uh, I always used to love the little inlays you got in those yeah. with the lyrics. Um, and I'd read those lyrics and they were a kind of poetry to me. But obviously they only really came to life when they were set to music. Um, so when I was at school, you know, I was taught poetry, but it wasn't something that I immediately engaged with. Yeah. Um, and then I think it was probably when I was about 16, 17, so studying for my A-levels, um, I was just sort of wandering around the school library, you know, quite a sort of bookish kind of character. Um, and I found uh, The Whitsun Weddings, a collection by Philip Larkin. And that collection of poems, um, I just found it really inspiring because it was about ordinary life. And it was written in an ordinary language, you know, making use of slang, swear words, you know, the kinds of things that I felt were lived language, languages I used it. Um, and I thought, wow, poetry can be about ordinary things. Poetry can be about everyday life. It doesn't have to be written by somebody who's had a particular kind of grand experience or somebody of a particular stature in society or anything like that. It can be written by an ordinary person about their ordinary life and they can find the extraordinary within the ordinary and that's what I fell in love with so it was it was kind of off my own steam because I remember I think it was um, the former poet laureate Andrew Motion he said that the poetry should be contraband in schools so rather than <laughs> teaching it you basically say no one should be allowed poetry yeah, yeah, and then you yeah, make yeah. it into this subversive dangerous exciting thing and obviously kids would rush towards yeah. it Whereas sometimes when it is packaged in maybe a more formal educational setting, it can be difficult to break down those barriers. Um, and so, yeah, that was my sort of experience at school that I, you know, I had good English teachers, but I had to find it for myself, really, to, yeah. to understand what poetry was about and the kind of poetry I enjoyed and the kind of poetry I ultimately wanted yeah. to try and write. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's similar to me. I didn't engage with it at school at all. I only remember the one poem we did in school, which was um, Half Cast by Egard. Yeah, um, course, yeah. And he's a great performer. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So it yeah. really comes to life. Yeah. It? I suppose I think I only remember that because it was probably the closest thing to my own experience, even though it's not really. But, you know, as I said in my episode, I think if you can, if you want to relate poetry or, or art to your life bad enough, you can find ways to do that with anything. Yeah, I think that's so true because especially when you were talking about music before and CDs and that idea of what is sort of the music of rock bands is so irrelatable to like all of our sort of things that I imagine many similar different experiences growing up 
and you go, yeah, but I can relate to that somehow. You're listening to this really grand, extravagant rap song or, or rock or whatever it is. And you bring your ly- those lyrics down to that level and you think, yeah, this is me as a 13 year old. You know, you've got no struggles, have you? You've got no issues at all, but you want to find a connection. And I think that's how a lot of people end up getting into poetry. It's through desire to be seen in another art form. Uh, for those that don't know, you're obviously a lecturer in creative writing, which is how we met here. Um, but when you did your degree in English and philosophy, was was that your end goal to teach, or is that something that you you came to as a kind of way to make money from your craft? Um, I think like a lot of people, I, I, I chose English and philosophy because they interested me uh, as a subject area, and and I knew that there were differing careers that I could do afterwards. You know, there were there were degrees. Obviously, you, you do dentistry, you become a dentist. You're nursing, you become a nurse. I think if you study something like English philosophy, history, creative writing. You're not necessarily 100% certain what you want to do afterwards, but you know you're going to get those transferable skills and you can be able to do something. So I think it was it was over time that I started to realise that it wasn't just the reading and writing of literature and discussing literature um, with my peers in seminar groups. It was also the idea that I could use literature to, to help transform other people's lives. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is actually something I really enjoy doing. So to begin with, I was, you know, like, like anybody, most people, I would say, when they're starting out teaching, you're sort of slightly terrified, you know, when you're running <laughs> your first workshop, thinking, what have I got to say to anybody? But, you know, you sort of grow, grow in confidence with it and you see the change in people when you are teaching people um, and you see them grow. And the collaborative process as well, I enjoy that. You know, it's not just mm. the way that we run things here at the University of Bolton. It's not me standing or whoever it might be teaching up in front of a room full of people for 50 minutes talking incessantly, even though I can talk incessantly. <laughs> um, it's, it's a collaborative, as, as you know, you know it's, it's a collaborative environment. So we're having discussions, we're doing writing exercises, it's more of a kind of dynamic space. There's lecture components, but it's more fluid. And I like, I like those kinds of spaces, you know, where people can have a conversation and start to grow and develop. Um, so that you know, it's just something that I enjoy doing, and if you can get paid to do something yeah. you enjoy, that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely talk a little bit, but more about the the program here and our nurturing and everything it is. Um, but before we do that, just to touch on what we've been talking about, making money from our craft and stuff like that, we talk here on the podcast a lot about that. Um, obviously, you're a published poet, you're a lecturer in university, but you're a critic, you're an academic, you know, you've just done the uh, study on Don Patterson and things like that. Um, so it, it seems like you've you've mastered the, the art of, of making a steady living from all from your craft in more ways than one. Um, and I just wonder what you think about like the the economic landscape for creatives, especially like us working class creatives, we've got our fingers in a lot of pies at the moment, trying to make like a steady, and it's it's tough. Like, you know, we, we work full time. Um, we, we do the podcast, we've done the, we've started the kick. We do, we both run our own nights, uh, monthly nights and stuff like that. Yeah, just what, what your thoughts are on on making it as a creative, how, how easy it is and you may be like uh, advice. <laughs> yeah. Well, how easy it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly, how hard it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, really, yeah. It's, it's really hard work, definitely, I'd agree with that. I mean, people can look at sort of perhaps where I am now, where, you know, other people are in terms of having published books and, uh, and having permanent positions, lecturing at universities. And, uh, uh, but there's a, there's a long process that leads up to that point. Um, and I think, you know, if, if it's something that you're passionate about, if it's something you care about, you you do end up putting in a lot of the long hours off your own steam, don't you? Yeah. I mean, when I think about um, my own poetry and I think about writing criticism and, you know, trying to develop a, a reputation as a poet and as a reviewer, there was a lot of hard graft that I had to go in, in terms of me, you know, writing for nothing quite often or writing for a free copy of a poetry collection or, you know, in the first instance, writing reviews for student magazines uh, and then perhaps you know for smaller magazines and and trying to place poems you know I've still got a drawer full of rejection slips and I always talk to students about that you know it doesn't happen for anyone magically overnight you mean yeah. do you mean a literal draw or are you talking yeah, about no, for do you do you keep them yeah, so that's really uh, interesting. I mean, obviously, um, it's sort of things have changed a bit now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Submittable and you printed them out every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But back in the day, you used to send your poems out, printed, you know, with a stamped address envelope with enough postage to return them to you, and a nice little note saying thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but often, what you would get is, you know, if if there was some something that 
an editor had recognised in the work that they enjoyed, then they might, you know, sort of give you a little bit of encouragement. Yeah. So you get a note from somebody you really respected, somebody who kind of probably read and thought, oh, this person's great, and, and they give you that little bit of confidence. And then when you do get an acceptance and, you know, you get that slip, you know, you want to keep hold of these things because I think it's important to celebrate successes, but also to recognise the long process. And I sort of joke about the fact that, yeah, I have got enough of those rejection slips to probably pay for, you know, a small bathroom. So <laughs> it could be, you know, the, the toilet of shame or whatever it would yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. title for a collection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So talking about the long graft, obviously you going back um, to the beginning, I suppose the beginning of your writing career, you won the poetry business competition and an audit and writers award with your pamphlet uh, in 2014 for real and then you won another one uh if i'm not correct if i'm not uh, wrongly informed <laughs> another uh, northern writers award in 2018 with way more than luck um so obviously you've been you've been at this for a while um how important do you think these accolades are in terms of furthering your career um and getting more opportunities and also is there a pressure that you feel when you're writing same difference after having all these highly commended uh, works before, you know? Yeah, I mean, I always say that if you if, if you do get any kind of recognition for your work, and that can take different forms, I mean, you talk about sort of prizes and awards, but also, like I say, you know, the acceptance of a poem, or even just somebody who you respect yeah. giving you that, you know, kind of props, if you like, that kudos for what you're doing. Um, that, that puts a dent in the self-doubt that's always there yeah and I, yeah yeah, yeah. And also, you know I, I don't think that's necessarily a sad thing I mean sometimes I do talk to students about the fact that you never really fully get over that self-doubt as a writer because yeah, true. there's always that subjectivity isn't there to the appreciation of art if you win Olympic gold as a sports person <laughs> no one no one can say you didn't win that you cross the finish line first in the race so you win that's it no one can argue with that whereas it doesn't matter how great a writer you are or how many people have said maybe nice things about your work there will always be detractors of people who don't enjoy your work because it's just not for them yeah so you've always got that feeling of oh am i am i doing good stuff is it really worthwhile you know are people enjoying this could i be doing better it's hard to kind of get a clear sense of where you stand, if you like. Yeah. Whereas in other areas, like I say, like maybe in say sports or something like that, there is that clear, you know, sort of ranking, that kind of pecking order, that seeding. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to seed writers <laughs> like you do in tennis yeah. players for Wimbledon. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, that's a beautiful thing, the subjectivity of art and the appreciation of it, but it also makes it quite difficult as a, as a writer sometimes to, to recognise your achievements and to uh, and to move forward, yeah, and to think, well, who am I writing for? What do I want to do with my writing? You know, there's, there's questions that writers ask themselves over and over, I think, about, you know, their own artistic integrity, the kind of audience they want to reach, um, you know, the kinds of things they want to write about, um, uh, you know, kind of, do they need to change it up? You know, have they got stuck in in their ways? You know, writers do do that sometimes. Um, yeah. It, and you, you sort of want to disappoint the season ticket holder. Yeah. <laughs> in a absolutely. Because going back to music, you see yeah. the fans, don't you? Quite often that they they find a winning formula, maybe or one that they're comfortable with. Very difficult second album. Yeah. yeah, and then they keep churning out albums quite often. Whereas if, like you say, they're an, a, an artist that's maybe challenging themselves, that album will be difficult because mm. they've got to try and do something new. And when I think about the bands I enjoy, it's probably the same as the poets I enjoy, that they progress with each book. Mm. So they're still recognisably the same poet, but they're trying to do something different. And there's a sense of movement, if not necessarily like progression. Because mm. um, I wouldn't want to just become a kind of caricature of myself. I don't think any writer wants to do that because it would be just boring for you mm. as a writer to just churning out the same thing and apart from anything else you know if you're writing poems you, you're unlikely to be making the big books out of it anyway so yeah. why bother <laughs> yeah. if you're a musician and you're very successful perhaps you're thinking well this album will sell a, you know however many numbers of copies where if I do something experimental or mm -hmm. esoteric or strange then I'll leave my fan base but you could you could probably take more risks as a as a literary writer mm -hmm. whether that's as a poet or as a as a novelist 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, that's that's definitely something I learned um, recently myself. Going to uh, open mics and stuff. What, going back to what you said about um, you know being comfortable in knowing that not everyone's gonna like it or uh, or be perceptive to it. Um, I think I left uni with such a high grade and you know this body of work that was quite strong, mm. and I just thought. Oh, everyone's gonna love this because it's good, but it's you know people. Some people don't, and that's that's absolutely fine. Uh, but as you say, we'll always have that imposter yeah. syndrome. You know, we've talked about it before, and, and it depends on the audience you're connecting with. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Massive. if you're thinking about um, you know certain poets who are very very good in performance, their work sometimes isn't so successful on the page, and yeah. vice versa. Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, not everybody is a is a master. Of, of every sort of arena or trade you know yeah. there's, there's the John Cooper Clarks of this yeah. world and the Benjamin Zephaniahs and then there's a Carol Ann Duffy or there's a you know an Intiaz Darko or, yeah. or Don Patterson who is is just appealing to a different kind of reader yeah um, and and I think that's fine um, I've never had a problem with poetry being many things. We sometimes talk about it like it's one thing. Um, and I think that's a problem because people don't know about music. You don't go, oh, do you like music? Yes, I like music. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Whereas I think we can end up making mistakes with thinking like, oh, okay, we're all fighting over this, you know, one sort of piece of pie. Yeah. Um, and actually, there are different audiences for different kinds of poetry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and those are changing all the time. Yeah, as well. And you, you know, like Insta poetry is a prime example of that. Yeah, I was just about to hit on that. With there's been a lot of Twitterverse discussion this week about like Rupi Kaur and mm. and and the rise mm. of this really short form style of poetry do you have any thoughts on that relating to what you've just said about genres like because it's definitely bringing people into the art form which should be celebrated i suppose yeah i mean i, I suppose it depends on um your kind of aesthetic preferences would be the way i'd describe it so um a lot of people are drawn to that poetry i think anyway because it, it tends to be like rupee core for example it's it's often a teenage audience mm. isn't it so it's, it's, it's young asian women um to a large extent who are drawn to your work and that's probably because they don't see that representation maybe elsewhere and it's it's immediately relatable to them but it's also because that that sort of very short form has an immediate emotional impact sometimes mm. and it's it's something that you can understand straight away so I, it's not the kind of poetry that i often go to because my preference is usually for something that will challenge me yeah. a little bit more um but I think it, it's interesting because it's still in its infancy. Massive. So, so it's 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 got scope and it's really interesting. You know what's going to happen with Insta poetry going forward, and obviously we've got like ChatGPT now, and AI poetry, and all sorts of strange developments on the horizon. So I think there's room for all of these changes in poetry. But sometimes people can see it as maybe a threat to a particular type of poetry. But like you say, it can be a gateway for a lot of people. You know, people often talk about. Um, if you talk about people of an older generation, like older than myself, they were into the Liverpool beat poets, mm. you know, Roger McGough and um, uh, Agent Henry and people like that, you know, sort of um, poets who were seen as sort of a bit rock and roll and mm. alternative um, back, you know, back in the day. And, you know, people have always looked for that maybe in the first instance with poetry, mm. something that they can relate to, something that they're more comfortable with. It's, it's not it's not just poetry either is it it's all forms if you look at like you say rock music you you get into the who and then you get into black sabbath and then you end up on a thing and you listen to napalm death like it's a slow process isn't it you're not going to go and start listening to the most extreme sort of music you're not going to go and start reading the most challenging and unconventional poetry you you start with it i liken it to like um like a tv serial like eastenders or something like that because it's easy to pick up it's easy to put down but there's a familiarity, there's a sense of, oh, okay, this feels like something that I've seen or experienced or can grasp, I think, for a lot of people. And they don't have to be challenged by the filmmaking, <laughs> the artistry behind it. It's all about the story. And I think that's the same thing with Insta Poetry. It's all about the feeling that it elicits in the reader rather than um, the technique or the, the ideas or the performance. It's just 10 words on a page. Do you feel an emotion? Yeah. Very yeah. 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 
I think it also speaks to the times that we live in now. You know, you're commuting on a train in the morning to yeah. work and everybody, well, 90% of the people will have a phone in their hands. They'll be scrolling. And in, in you know, if you're going from Bolton to Salford, you're going on it for 15 minutes. You could probably read one of Rupi's old books in that time. Because, <laughs> no, you know, you probably couldn't. But you know what I'm saying? You, yeah, could, yeah. you can ingest yeah, yeah. moments like really quick. Um, and I think that's part of the the appeal to that as well. I mean, I, I when I studied here, I, I was dead against Rupi Kaur and Insta Poetry. I probably wrote an essay on it. I'm I'm very I've changed my mind now just because uh, I was invited back here uh, last month to do a, a, a performance and a talk on poetry for Poetry Day, um, and I came with my friend Tom Stocks, which is uh, part of the Bent Key cohort. And his poetry is very different to mine and to Will's and to a lot of people's. He's very like topical and funny. He's got a poem about Greg's and things like this. But I think your poetry's topical. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah, but one of the students that came up, he didn't know what he was coming to. He turned up to the hangout and he said, what's this? And someone else said, it's a poetry. And he was like, poetry? Poetry is dead. And just, you know, started saying, I've not heard a poem spoken out loud in my life and all these things. And then Tom got up there um, and picked on him a little bit for saying that, but in a, in a light, in a light, jokey way. And was like, but you probably haven't heard poetry like this. And by the end, the, that guy and a few others that were not into it, like one of them bought my chapbook and, one, and another one was like, oh my God, that's poetry. I didn't know that's poetry. And now I'm all up for people opening the doors to poetry because maybe that will be a gateway, like you say, into other people and you know yeah yeah i think that's true i mean one thing i would say about insta poetry that um i because you're alluding to the fact that people can read it very quickly and digest yeah. it i always feel like what i love about poetry is actually that it, it sort of is something that demands quite a lot of your mm -hmm. attention and it carves out space and time in the moment in you yeah. know in, in a world where we are encouraged to pay you know sort of limited attention to things then move on to the next thing move on to the next yeah. thing so i actually I actually quite like that about, I mean, I see what, I do see what you're saying, obviously, with Insta, Insta poetry being, you know, kind of um, in, in step with yeah. modern, yeah, modern yeah, life. Yeah. But I quite like the fact that poetry sometimes isn't. Yeah, no, me too. With the way we look I agree. Around. No, I agree yeah. with that 100%. I think, I just think that um, a lot of ta a lot of people have mis misconceptions about it because of what they've been taught at school and, and things like this. Yeah, and you, you need something. And you expect it all to, to be, you know, Shakespeare, yeah. Yeats, Shelley, all these greats, absolutely. But mm. you probably expect it all to be like that. And then when you come across something that isn't and you're like, oh, I could get into mm. this. And then you probably search out more things and mm. find different people, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about other, other media, you know, we've talked a little bit about that already, but films, I always think, are a really mm -hmm. good example of, you know, people object to... The, the difficulty in poetry but then like you say if you're starting with, with poetry that actually is more accessible in the media it's 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 a lot like film where you you know you're not going to go and watch you know sort of obscure european yeah. indie cinema in the first instance that that's quite experimental you're going to be watching in the first instance when you're growing up hollywood films yeah. that will be you know kind of more conventional in terms of in terms of narrative in terms of character of life set off everything the cinematography um but then actually what's interesting about that are people are exposed to so much um visual media whether it's film or um, or television when they're growing up that they're ready for the complex stuff a lot sooner yeah and i almost wish there was more of that with poetry yeah. that that if if there was a way to i suppose through the education system which is often the the, the way to do it but just to get people interested and less afraid of poetry. Because kids have that natural enthusiasm for language and play mm. with language. Yeah. And kids' poetry is a really thriving medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think I think it's somewhere along the way what happens is that poetry then gets perhaps packaged as something that's difficult, complex, that yeah. you have to have a degree to understand and so on and so forth. And people think, well, it's not for me. And it's written by people who aren't like me. And that isn't... No. Um, so if there's a, if there was a way I suppose of, um, of of bringing that kind of just feeling comfortable with difficulty mm. that yeah. that would be fantastic earlier in people's lives and then by you know by the time they're 18 19 they're not saying oh well I don't understand poetry yeah it's exactly the same as film um, and uh, and TV that it's they're watching all sorts of stuff and some of it's actually very very complex and demanding mm. but they understand the tropes and techniques and the conventions mm. of the form 
so it doesn't seem this really impossible thing that they can't approach yeah if that if that makes sense yeah yeah, no, yeah. That makes sense um, right, I know we're pushed for time, so I want to talk about a couple of things uh, before we do go. So, uh, Way Modern Look is your first collection, full collection. It deals with things like male mental health, also your love for the game of football, for Liverpool Football Club. Um, and the poems in there feel quite reflective of your own experience. Um, and although that was described as formally uh, experimental I believe this new collection same difference is more experimental in um, things like voice and I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about you know um, why why you decided to go to, to change it up uh, in from one book to the other and what informed that decision I suppose yeah I mean some of these things sort of happen by accident because I, I don't know if, you, if, if your writer is working on a novel um, then you have a clear sense of project and obviously that changes over time but you yeah. know you, you put the structure in place and it develops um, whereas with poetry sometimes some poets I think they do have a sense of project they're writing a long poem you know a book length uh, poem maybe like Alice Oswald's Dart for example which is a really good contemporary example of that but a lot of the time you're just writing poems and then you get to a point where you've got 30 40 50 of them and you think right I should try and get a book together now and that's sort of the way it's, it's worked for me so I, I didn't necessarily have a clear sense of, of, of project in terms of the transition from way more than luck to same same difference what I have done with uh, way more than luck was that I did work like alluded to on, on a couple of sequences and one was exploring attitudes towards uh, male mental health and exploring you know some of the stigma surrounding mm -hmm. that and trying to, to talk about that honestly um, and the sequence on on football so there, there was a sense of structure there but otherwise like the final third of that collection is just poems that I've written over like a number of years okay so um, when I came to say different actually there were some poems that um, had been written quite some time ago um, that ended up in that collection. And those are the poems that were versions, um, so creative interpretations of French poems by the 19th century symbolist poet Paul Verlaine. Yep. Um, and I started to think, hang on a minute, I am writing more and more poems in different voices. So I version Verlaine, um, I'm starting to write more dramatic monologues. I'm starting to become very interested in the idea that the voice is something that's just this specially calibrated thing within an individual poem because yeah. what I love about poems and I suppose this is somebody who does tend to engage with them primarily on the page I love that you know um, conversation that you have it's just you and the poem um, and that's a very different experience I think to seeing somebody perform and being part of a collective in terms of an audience um, but I was very interested in the fact that poems just perform this amazing conjuring trick there's no one there yeah. it's just you yeah. but you feel like there's a person talking to you if the poem does its job if it's a good poem you feel like you're in the presence of, of somebody who's you know bearing themselves to you or is telling you something really important um it's almost like having a really intense amazing conversation with somebody in a coffee shop or in, or in a pub yeah. you know <laughs> um yeah. but there's nobody there you know it is that in a poem it is you creating that when you're writing you're creating that convincing voice and i was I was just more interested in the fact that what I thought my voice was as a poet wasn't something fixed, it was something that was changing all the time. Yeah. And versioning the lane helped me with that because I was, you know, kind of through translating sort of uh, basic cribs um, of, of Verlaine's work and then looking at how other people had translated it, getting a sense of, of what his poems were doing. And I thought, okay, these are really interesting. But the more I was playing around with his voice, the more my own, what I thought was my own voice in inverted commas, um, started to change and I started to inhabit different voices you know so there's there's poems you know in the voice of a whale or a cage fighter yeah. or um, awesome. yeah, a bouncer, <laughs> yeah. all sorts of different characters you know people that um, are from walks of life that there might be people that I've met in some instances but they're not me yeah. um, and they're composite characters as well yeah. you know they're not based on anyone in particular they're inventions um, that are supposed to be rooted in verisimilitude in a sense of reality um so I, I just like I suppose just playing around with voice in that way and, and I thought well when I had enough poems for a, for a second book I thought this is the structuring kind of principle yeah. that I, I want each poem to be um different to the last you know so it's it's surprising the reader yeah because mm. that's ideally what you want in a, in a book 
that it, it, it never stagnates and it doesn't feel like the reader knows what the next poem is. Yeah, no, I get that, absolutely. That actually leads on very nicely to my next uh, question or point of discussion, um, which is ordering poems uh, in a collection. You know, I learned a lot from you in that in that uh, in regards, thinking about uh, the most impactful way to tell the story or, or how to take the uh, reader on a journey, I suppose. And, and I'd never actually thought about the reader in that sense until... I'd never gave them that much thought, really. Just, okay, they're going to read this, but not... <laughs> You know, not 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 thought about them in that much detail, um, and I was actually informed by that um, to to section my my pamphlet into three sections and to keep all my family poems and then tra their translations grouped together. Um, and I just wondered what how why not maybe why but yeah why you decided to dot your Verlaine versions. Uh, across the book rather than you know give, give them their own little section I suppose. Yeah and that was something that I considered doing to begin with you know like way more than luck would I just arrange them um, into a kind of sequence but I thought because each of those poems felt like it was almost in a slightly different voice because the reason I was drawn yeah. to Belaine's work is the fact that he has different voices some of his poems are quite tender and atmospheric some of them are you know sort of really rebarbative confrontational um uh, and so I wanted to dot them throughout the collection because they felt like distinct voices in themselves in the same way that the voices in the other poems were, were distinct and, and complementary and clashing in different ways. So, um, yeah, sort of threading Belaine through, it felt, it felt less like I'd said, well, here's my translational version of Paul Belaine and here is me actually sort of you know, donning the mask of oh, the various masks of Paul Belaine and then taking them off and putting them back on again and sort of chopping and changing yeah. throughout the entire collection. Um, and again, just, just for variety, really. Yeah. You know, I sort of remember Philip Larkin, who's a poet that I've, I've, I've always um, gone back to. He, he said he ordered his collections to surprise the reader. You know, if you're, if it's like a variety show. Yeah. If you're not enjoying this one, you'll, you'll hopefully enjoy the next one. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's really cool. Um, and just while we're here as well on the subject, can we talk a little bit about the difference between versioning and translation? Because mm. uh, I, I, I didn't know this until a lot, till recently. Yeah, so I mean, the debate around translation sort of rages on and people have different ideas about what a translation, what a version is. But essentially, if, you, if you're translating, um, you're, you're bilingual or you're multilingual and you're able to, you know, sort of uh, read and understand, appreciate both languages ideally i'm monolingual i don't have very much french at all <laughs> so this is the practice really versioning that is um of taking the work of a poet in a foreign language and looking at how other people have translated it using something like google translate yep. to get a very literal crib and then you triangulate a kind of position and get a sense of the the spirit of the kind of beating heart of that poem and versions are then much freer. So it can be, a version can really just be a, your creative response, if yeah. you like, to an existing poem in another language. So you're not, you're not feeling that sense of fidelity. Yeah, Translation yeah. is more of an act of service. Yeah. It's saying, look, there's these wonderful poems in German or Italian. I want English readers to be able to understand them. So you're trying to capture yeah. as much of the, as you can of the original. Versioning is a bit more selfish in the first instance, because it's saying, I just want to try on these pair of shoes or this mask yeah. you know, this hat to see what what happens yeah. you know to, to see how it changes my voice um, yeah. and how it helps me to develop creatively and then hopefully in the process you do produce something that's engaging and entertaining and, it, and it's easier to make those succeed as poems as well yeah because the difficulty with translation is, is obviously that poems are very carefully calibrated things yeah and as as anybody knows, like yeah. yourself, you know, sort of fluent in Portuguese and English, there's not exact equivalencies. No, it? it's it's very difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult to. Well, it's impossible to translate literature in all its forms literally. It's you know, it's it's impossible. There are words that in the Russian language, for example, doesn't have a word for dark blue, only as for blue, or it doesn't have a word for maternal or paternal uncle. It's just uncle. You know, there's there's a lot of things that play into. Uh, Plenty of translation. I struggled. Uh, I struggled with translating my own poems because I've never written in Portuguese to start off. Um, the poems in sardines that I've translated were, were I, I struggled with the idea of 
being faithful to the language because I've you know I left school in Portugal in primary school so it's I do f I am fluent in it but it's a little rusty. Will, however, as a poem in his collection, um, which is a postcard that he found in Italy, yeah. in Italy that is is translated. Yeah, again, oh, as you say, just through the medium, I don't know Italian of Google Translate. And it, I, actually, now I didn't know that, but I suppose it is more of a version than a translation because, like you say, I'd taken the, the root of it, popped it in Google because I had no idea what it said. And I thought the idea of this unknown writing was really beautiful. It could have been anything. It could have turned out horribly, but it didn't. It was It was really gorgeous. It was about missing their friend that had come on holiday with them and then gone and the swimming and, and what they've been up to and it felt like a real snapshot of another life that I could never ever ever have lived yeah. and to take that as a base and then sort of add on to it I suppose my experience of being in Italy that summer yeah felt like yeah I, I did call it a translation but I think a, a version is definitely the right the right title it was yeah. especially given that element of creative collaboration that you yeah. talked about there you know it's almost a found poem that mm. you've, you've adapted mm. Uh, and mingled with your own experience, mm. which is exactly what you're doing, I think, when you are mm. versioning somebody else's poetry. Yeah. I feel like we've had a lecture there. That was beautiful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just two more things. So I obviously found the, the BA in creative writing here um, incredibly engaging and nurturing. Um, the uni ranks in like top two, top five. Uh, yeah, we. I mean, we tend between... to get consistently ranked very highly in the Guardian yeah. University Guide. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, you know, it was instrumental in my development as a writer I am today. One of the moments that really sticks in my mind time and time again is when you played the Smith, the Smith's uh, Dinosaur in the Hoods to us during mm. one lecture, because that was the moment that I was like, okay, this. Poetry can really be anything. It doesn't have to be, you know, your your Carolyn Duffy's and your Simon Armitage and For those who don't know, such as myself, tell me about this poem, this piece. Danesse Smith is a, a non binary writer, I believe, um uh in America. Um and they've got an incredible collection. I think they've got two. I'm not I'm not familiar with the first one too much, but the second one, Homie, has a different title for black uh, for people of colour. Um, but it's called Homie, and it's just incredible. And this this uh, poem, Dinosaur in the Hoods, is just imagining um, a movie where uh, the black experience isn't, I suppose, like the butt of the joke. It's just a normal life. Kids are playing with toys, and you know, it's not. It's not. Um, there's no guns and no violence and none of these things, but it's you need to watch it. It's, it's really, really amazing. Everybody check that poem. And, out. and like you say, watching it, you know, the, the it, it's an experience. Yeah, Danez is an incredible uh, performer. Like I've only seen them live. I believe you caught, caught them in real life at one point. Yeah, when when Danez uh, was shortlisted for the forward prize for poetry. Yeah, in fact, no, the collection won that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it won. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they gave. Yeah, and it's an incredible performance. Yeah. And I think I think that's the interesting thing with Danez because there is that real crossover that they came um, from more of a performance background yeah. and they've become increasingly interested in the demands of writing for the page mm. and combining both, which is such a hard thing to do, but um, it's something that Danez does, yeah, does really well. Yeah. Uh, they came up through Button Poetry, which we've spoken about before. I'm pretty sure the first collection was... Or maybe a pamphlet was uh, was three button, and that's how I found them originally as well. Well, not how I found them, but how I um, researched them a bit more. How important is it to you, and how how kind of easy it is to contemporize the poetry that you're teaching to the new cohort of poets that are coming up like today? Because you know that's not what you get taught at school. So yeah, I mean, uh, this is one of the challenges of, of teaching. Um, creative writing is a, you know, is a living, breathing, developing practice because, you know, I, I have my preferences mm. and I, you know, sort of, you think of yourself always as a, as a young poet and then suddenly you look in the mirror and you realise you're not a young poet anymore. <laughs> the, the people that you're teaching are often the, the young and up-and-coming poets and you're part of a, an older generation. Um, so I, what I'm always trying to do, I suppose, is just be open uh, like we discussed, you know, earlier in the podcast, to um, different types of poetry and how I can perhaps incorporate those into my teaching. Yeah. Because Danae Smith is a is a prime example yeah. of that. You know, I've encountered that poem um, through uh, that first first full collection 
um, winning the forward prize and I thought this would be something that's really interesting to show the students because it's it's entertaining, it's humorous, but then it makes a very serious point and it, and it becomes very angry and um, almost a polemic, doesn't it, yeah. at the close? And it starts off as just this jokey kind of poem. You think, oh, this is fun and entertaining. And then suddenly it lays it on really thick. And yeah. it, it does that in a really intelligent way, you know, like you've alluded to, by interrogating stereotypes that are hidden in plain sight. Like, yeah. why does every movie with people of colour in have to be about the pain and suffering yeah. and subjugation of people of colour? Why does it have to be 12 Years a Slave, you know, which yeah. is obviously a great film, but that is the tradition you say no this is just dinosaurs in the hood this yeah. is about grandmas from, yeah. <laughs> from a community getting their guns out yeah <laughs> even behind mattresses shooting yeah. t-rexes exactly yeah and and there's just a sense of fun and joy in that but making a very serious point at the same time yeah. um and demonstrating as well that, that sort of fertile hybrid crossover between performance and page which yeah. some, some poets can do very well um you know maybe being be more in one tradition than the other, but having that ability to move between the two. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is yeah, just really interesting. But yeah. I think I think that is the challenge, you know, if you if you're a if you're a teacher of creative writing, you, you want to try and keep your finger on the pulse. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and it's hard it's hard to do that. Um, and you just have to keep yourself open as well to to new types of poetry, even if they're speaking a language that you maybe don't immediately understand because it's about experiences that you yeah. don't understand but that's why we come to poetry isn't it Absolutely. i mean i love poems that reflect aspects of my own experience but i also love poems that show me other people's lives and that's so eye-opening isn't yeah. it when somebody's been able to distill something about what it is to be a particular kind of person um and and you suddenly it suddenly hits you and that's you know that's education in its fullest sense isn't it, it has a, an immediate emotional impact on you um and yeah just helps helps you to to be a more rounded person i guess and to understand the richness and complexity of life in, in the world yeah that's a really insightful way of uh, looking at it right so before we ask you the big question here on the redraft podcast um and let you go um we've touched a bit on form we've spoken about placement of poems uh about the poetic voice uh, obviously, we had a redraft podcast. I am a huge redrafter. I can't leave poems alone. I'm always going back um, and 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 touching it up. Um, so I just wanted to do quick thoughts on that. Like, do you edit a lot? Uh, do you think that's important? Coming coming out of uni, where I learned this tool, I've encountered numerous people. Uh, Will's partner, for example, who writes, um, who can write poems in ten minutes and then say are happy to say, okay, this is done, it's polished, it's ready to be shared with the world. Um, I find that really foreign. Sometimes I find it in, uh, inspiring. Mickey is an incredible writer. She does it really well. Um, other people maybe could do with a redraft or two. I just wondered your thoughts on that. What 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 yeah, uh, what kind of writer you are? I, I teach redrafting as one of like the underpinning kind of um, principles of good writing. But it's not to say that you can't, you know, kind of write in a more spontaneous way. I mean, it's, it, it depends on the kind of tradition you're working in. I mean, if you think about Frank O'Hara, you think about the, you know, the New York poets, they were taking their cue from, from art at the time in the, in the 50s and 60s in America, which was all about this kind of spontaneity. It wasn't about craft. It wasn't about sort of working away to produce this polished piece of art. It was about you know, walking around on your lunch break in Manhattan and just writing down the things that you saw and that happened to you. Um, but I also think that a lot of the time, a lot of like, poets who, who sort of are sort of given the impression of spontaneity have often done more work on their poetry than they let on. A good example of that is Alvin Ginsberg. You know, he used to pretend that um, because it was kind of marketable and it fit with his persona, that Howell, his great poem, was just written in this furious passion and, and I think that was just because, you know, it's what we thought readers probably wanted to hear and the audience wanted to hear. But actually, we know now, because he gifted all of his many redrafts and papers to um, a university in the States, that it went through meticulous, painstaking redrafts. And, and I just think most of the time, there has to be that kind of process. Some poems are a gift. Like when you've been writing poetry for a while, you do get those poems sometimes, but they just don't need that much work. 
but the process there is a kind of hidden one that mm. you've done the work beforehand yeah and a lot of the poem has maybe started to um take shape um inside of you already and then, so by the time you come to, to you know the fingers are on the keyboard or the pens on the page it, it's already um halfway there or more you know i go out running quite often and one of the things i like about running and being out in nature whether it's hiking moving through the landscape obviously we're, we're famous to, to walk across the fells and get ideas for poems is that you can you can kind of get a poem going and, and it's a good test of whether it's any good yeah. in the first instance you know you can get a few lines and when you come back you're ready to put pen to paper but even then i would still need to go through a redrafting process <laughs> and i don't trust myself either yeah. i don't trust myself and i don't think any writer should trust themselves so much that they they can't benefit from showing that poem to a few people yeah. it's not that you workshop every poem with no. a group of 20 people or however it might be because that can have its own pitfalls but you always need to be testing your work on people and that informs the way in which you then um, alter and change it and craft it and um, understand how it lands with with a reader or with an audience um, so yeah i think the redrafting process for for me is really important i think that you know the history of poetry uh going going right right back is full of people who have taken a lot of time over poems but there is a, a kind of mythology isn't there around the um the immediacy of, of poetic practice and people yeah, maybe poets want to give the impression sometimes <laughs> that things are super spontaneous really, when actually a lot of work's gone into them ultimately. It's really funny to picture Ginsburg as like sort of a LinkedIn guy trying to advertise his wares. So antithetical to to sort of like you say the, the image he wants to portray. I think that's a really yeah. interesting way of looking at it. I didn't know that about Howell either. Yeah. Which is kind of heartbreaking, but it does make sense as well when you think well, he tr sort of transitioned through his um, literary career, if you like. Uh, he started out, like you say, as iconoclast, and he would, you know, give readings naked and all sorts of stuff. And um, he was very much counterculture. But then by the end, you know, he was he, he was sat there, you know, in a lecture hall, being introduced by a professor who'd written a book <laughs> about his work, <laughs> saying, this is why Alan Ginsberg is, you know, the great poet of his generation. Mm. Um, and, and so I think that... Um, that transition you know so just shows you the two sides i suppose because there is that spontaneity isn't there in in writing in the first instance that unrehearsed spontaneity and that's why we come to writing the excitement of writing the poem mm -hmm. for the first time mm -hmm. but then there has to be that kind of um uh process of, of, of careful and meticulous mm -hmm. editing that is thank you ben that's that's brilliant we're about to wrap up but before we uh before we let you go we do have to ask you the big question, the title of the podcast. So if there was one thing in your writing career, in your life, in your journey so far through through creativity that you could go back and scribble out and with hindsight go, I'd like to have another another go at that. What is it? What would you go and redraft now, given the chance? What would I redraft? That's a good question. So um, I, I don't know. I often say that this was a good thing, but at the same time, <laughs> Did I enjoy learning that particular lesson? And this and this is with regard to um, to live performance and recognizing the kind of audience you're trying to meet with your writing. So I was invited a number of years ago. It was probably you know about 2021 20, at the time. I started to publish a few poems in magazines. My first pamphlet was on the horizon to read um, at a particular event. Um, that, uh, that somebody I sort of knew, a friend of a friend, was running in, in Sheffield. Now, I thought that this would be in a, in a venue, you know, that would have an upstairs function room or something like that, like a lot of the other events I've been to, and it would be a gathering of people who were there specifically for the poetry. Instead, it was passing trade on a Friday night in a pub <laughs> with people who were there to get drunk after a long, hard week at work. And the other people on the bill were comedians and musicians. And I was the only poet and I was reading my, you know, carefully crafted <laughs> page poems um, to an audience that really didn't want to hear them. Um, and so that taught me a valuable lesson about, you know, kind of the, the kinds of audiences you're trying to meet and the kinds of gigs that, uh, that are for you and, and maybe aren't for you. Um, but would I want to go through that again or would I want to just sort of completely erase my memory of it? Perhaps, yes. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. It's been... It's been... Thank you.
Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been insightful. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Great to see you on campus here. and there we go that was our chat with ben wilkinson really enjoyed that um what a guy fascinating yes i really enjoyed talking in particular with him about versioning and translating poems yes um thank you for tapping me into that conversation uh the will's got one of these and i was like oh god i don't know any italian at all i've got (laughs) such a hack translation but the way he talked about versioning actually completely changed my uh my understanding of the piece that I'd written it was like I got a mini lecture off him for free and so did everyone listening so yeah big up to that it was really really fascinating chat yeah I agree I I've we had a whole lecture on on translation and stuff at uni and when we were talking about it I just couldn't stop thinking about your poem because it's it's a fine line I think between versioning and and I think you've done a beautiful job of 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 doing that um, with your Italian postcard um, and it's a beautiful addition to your book for sure oh thank you um, if you want to go and uh, read that you can read it if you buy my book we're now approaching go out now uh, yeah and I really enjoyed uh, reminiscing about uh, the Dennis Smith poem that uh, Ben played to us one afternoon in class which is Dinosaurs in the Hood you'll have heard all about it in the episode but um, yeah again as I said in the beginning of the episode uh, this is why I enjoyed my time at uni so much because it just opened your eyes to to just what poetry can be and what it can do for you and um, it's not always the same thing for everyone but um, yeah if you want to check out that poem you can get it on the Poetry Foundation website, Uh, you can get Denez's book uh, Don't Call Us Dead which I have right now courtesy of Will and Michaela for my birthday, thank you Um, and yeah, no, Ben you know, was amazing um, and I'm really glad we've, we've had this chat yeah, amazing. So we'll be back. We've got a bit of a, a special week because we'll be back just me on Wednesday with a sort of extra bonus episode um, from my interview with um, Naz Kawakami, a director and writer of the film Every Day in Kaimuki, um, which we saw, which I saw at Manchester Film Festival. Um, we'll have a mini review of Manchester Film Festival Festival at the start of that as well. And then don't forget, I know you've just listened to us in the intro, but there was a whole hour of fascinating discussion in the middle. So (laughs) on Saturday, make sure you come. The doors open, Bolton, Three Guys Cafe. The doors open to making zines, our first workshop. Yes, six to eight, early evening, nice coffee, nice cakes and nice bit of art. So all for free. Why not? Come and join us, get your tickets on our link. And we will see you there. Bye. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.